0: Hello and welcome to episode 12 of No Blueprint featuring Chris Derrickson, chief of West Bank First Nation, entrepreneur, founder and partner of Alderville Planning. Chris, thank you so much for being here with us today. I appreciate it, man.
1: Thanks for having me, Justin. This is a huge privilege. Thanks.
0: First, I'd like to, you know, pay homage. I reside on the traditional territory of the Algonquin people. So shout out to our Algonquin relatives. I want to pay homage to the creator for all things to align for us to connect here. I'm really grateful for that. I want to give a big shout out to all of our audience that's tuning in. Um, Actually, just on the event page that we posted on Facebook, we had a lot of engagement from West Bank First Nations. So shout out to all the youth out there and everybody who's showing love and supporting for this session. And uh, again, I wanna thank our guests for tuning in. I think uh, to be able to have uh, a chief on our No Blueprint series to share your story, to share your journey, um, I think is, is an amazing um, opportunity. So I'm so grateful for your time, uh, especially considering the crazy times that we're living in. So again, I wanna thank our guest, Chris, for being here. So again, I appreciate you and I just wanna pay, pay my homages. So first and foremost, how are you doing through these COVID times personally?
1: Well, Justin, it's definitely strange times for everybody. Um, I always keep reflecting, though, that it's very rare, and this might sound strange, but it's very rare that a generation gets to live through um, times like these. These are times that historians will write about and study, epidemiologists will be studying these times in terms of disease transmission. But the important part is we get an opportunity to shape these times and uh, do things differently. It's these times of unrest that give us time to pause and rethink how we function and be in the world and how society functions. And I think you can see from a, uh, the social movements across the globe that people are, are taking that step back and reconsidering what could be and actually taking action to make change across the globe when it comes to racial equality.
0: Awesome. I appreciate that. And to warm us up a little bit, and. You know, we crossed paths two years ago at West Bank First Nations AGM. So big shout out to Nicole. Actually, I want to make sure I give a big, warm uh, thank you and and full of gratitude for Nicole, uh, my cousin in West Bank, for setting this up, for allowing us to connect here. And the first time we crossed paths was at that AGM. So I just wanted to reflect on that.
1: Yeah, that seems like it was didn't seem like two years ago
0: time yeah.
1: but yeah shout out to nicole thanks nicole wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her and of course mama bear tells you you got to do something you got to do it so uh thanks. we have her to thank for for me crashing your party here
0: <laughs> appreciate you crashing the party man honestly you're actually you know adding to the party so uh, take us a little bit down um memory lane where did you grow up and where are you from
1: we want to go right back, uh, I was born in Vancouver, BC. Uh, my parents are Ray and Carol Derrickson. Uh, my mom's Carol Potts, named Carol Potts from Samson Cree, Cree Nation and Muscocheese. My dad is uh, Okanagan Seal from West Bank First Nation. Of course, they were two natives living the urban life in Vancouver uh, and in Burnaby. And uh, I was actually born in Vancouver and spent my first, I think, two and a half years out there. No memory whatsoever of those times but i like I, I like to think that i feel at home in vancouver because of those first few years i spent there um and then from there we moved to st albert uh from st albert just north of edmonton to calgary I spent uh, grades two to four six in calgary and then it was ele- i was 11 when we actually moved back uh my dad moved us to the reserve here in west bank Uh, Along the way came uh, two brothers, two younger brothers, Aaron, Graham and Aaron, um, one born in uh, St. Albert, uh, actually both born in St. Albert, and my youngest brother Aaron was born on Christmas Day, and he's actually just want to give him some props. He's uh, actually pursuing his PhD right now at UBC Okanagan, so extremely proud of him. Two uh, wonderful boys, um, doing quite well for himself. Uh, My other brother, he's the father of a a beautiful young lady. She's 16 now driving. It's just amazing how quickly they grow up. Uh, But yeah, we've been living here on the res uh, since I was 11. So going on 30 years now living West Wing First Nation with a bit of a hiatus to go off to school, live in Vancouver for seven years. Um, But really, this is my home.
0: Do you have any favorite childhood memories growing up here on the rez for within I'll those there on the rez <clears throat> could name a few um
1: back when we moved here there wasn't much here you see the highway behind me this is highway 97 i'm sitting in the chief's office of west bank first nation government offices um and there wasn't always what you see behind us with all the busyness this used to be a, just a two-lane highway years ago uh when we moved to the reserve it had been at that point, widened to four lanes, but there was a lot of fields, a lot of nothing. Uh, But what we had from West Bank First Nation is we owned a water slide called Wild and Wet. It's where I had my second job. My first job was delivering a paper route that I delivered, successfully delivered to the wrong houses for like 90 days straight before they came and tried to correct me. And then I just ended up moving on, we'll call it, quit but papers and paper deliveries not for me, but my first job after that was that wild and wet, and uh, so many memories of heading up to Wild and wet on bikes, doubling friends up there, uh, you know one on the panel bars, one on the back, stopping for slurpees along the way. Um, those were some some treasured times awesome. and then we'd have band nights we'd have nights for band members only, and we'd have the full run of the place. And, I mean, I can't, it was just just a load of fun being able being able to break all the rules that you couldn't that you had to follow during the day when the tourists were in town. But
0: we got you in a band. What's that? Were you in a band?
1: No band, my community.
0: Oh, okay, wasn't. my bad. Okay, yeah. I was like, yo, you're in a band too. I bet you he was a rapper. <laughs> I bet you he was a rapper. No, that's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that, and I think um, I I wanted to ask you that question because. I I really want people to get a little bit of insight in the journey of how you became chief and that, you know, the things that you've done in your early life don't necessarily dictate what your career can be and how you can make yourself whatever it is your dreams are and whatever goals you want to accomplish so I think you know starting on a paper route. Is really fascinating to now being in the chief's office you know 2020 during these quarantine times i just wanted to to kind of highlight that a little bit and one of the things i really am um, curious to learning from you is you know in this journey of understanding our history understanding our our background and where we come from and our identity i didn't learn that personally until my like i would say my early 20s is when i really started to understand my cultural value, understand my identity, and start learning about my history. So when did you start learning about your identity and who you are as a human being?
1: Well, I was fortunate to grow up uh, with both parents in the household and two very proud indigenous individuals. Uh, My mom being Cree is completely fluent in Cree. So I grew up in a household hearing Cree spoken regularly, especially if we were doing something wrong. Uh, we just had a Cree delegation come through today, and I was trying to speak Cree with them and saying some words. They were kind of impressed, and then they'd answer back, and I'd be like, I don't know what you're saying. But I knew the words like, go to bed, that's enough, eat your food, stop it, go away, <laughs> those types of things. So, And then, of course, uh, we, we grew up in Calgary and in St. Albert, my mom being from Musco we spent many a weekend, almost every other weekend uh, on Muscochise, visiting my Muslim Gokum, my grandma and grandpa, aunties and uncles and hanging with the cousins. So we were always surrounded by the Cree language. And my dad, he didn't speak the language. Um, Both my parents are, their parents are sort of survivors of residential school. Um, And my dad's side, he didn't get the opportunity to learn his language, but he was still heavily involved in his culture in his own way, always teaching us to hunt, always teaching us about our our Aboriginal rights, which we didn't understand at the time when we were kids. But regardless of where we lived in the city, he always made a point of making friends with farmers outside the city so we could go hunting. So I was raised, uh, despite living in the city, raised on wild meat. Um, One thing I'll point out for all you, anyone living on the prairies, all you prairie people is your deer eat grain all the time so we were raised on grain fed deer and then when we moved to the okanagan and we went hunting out here the deer they live out in the bush they're like proper bush deer and the taste was horrendous and we're like what is this it just never tasted right to us so now we hunt moose Uh, but both parents uh, heavily influential in shaping our indigenous identity and never letting us shy away or forget who we were uh, or what we were about. Um, Mom was uh, an activist uh, involved back in the day, so was Dad. Uh, worked be- way back 30, 40 years ago, back before I was born, for uh, my swim Indian Band. Also worked for the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, um, and then spent his career working for a number of First Nations or around uh, BC and Alberta. So, uh, very fortunate that way. And of course, when you meet seeing our grandparents every weekend, um, I mean, that was just an indigenous experience going back to Muscochise and and being on the res quite regularly.
0: And your father also has uh, a trap line. Um, Do you remember your first hunting day where you caught something?
1: Well, I I remember. So, Dad, the trap line was recently, it's called Derrickson trap line. It's been in the family, I should know this, since 1928, I want to say, registered um, trap line province of BC. My dad revitalized the trap line or started trapping again on the trapline about geez I want to say nine eight nine years ago now he built a cabin up there um, it's a wonderful place to go I built my own since then built my own cabin up at the trap line. Um, but it's a special place for us to go. Before that my dad would regularly like I said take us out and I have many memories as a kid living in Calgary uh, in the city urban Indian we bring in our, our deer to the backyard. Uh, our friends at school were always fascinated by the fact that we were Indians hunting and they would come over if there was a deer hanging in the backyard, want to check out the, the carcass and the meat and the hide. You know, a deer head was always something novel for them. Uh, but my first deer that I shot, it's actually up here uh, in McCullough, just on our reserve, um, across, uh, across the lake in Kelowna. And I was 11 years old and actually shot my first deer with a 22 single shot long barrel uh, with a sight that was held up by a penny that my grandfather had fixed. It was my grandfather's old gun, which he gave to my dad. My dad then gave to me. And uh, we were out hunting that day. And I remember shooting that deer. And um, it's all fun and games until you actually pull the trigger on something and you realize you're taking a life. Uh, You're causing pain to another living being. Uh, So it was a humbling experience. and At the same time, comical, because uh, I shot this deer. And of course, we're on a logging road that people use for recreational purposes. And I remember shooting the deer and you just kind of panic because you realize what you've done. And I walked up to it and it wasn't dead. So it's kind of flailing around and I just froze. And then a car came by and I was standing there with my dad's friend Uh, Leonard Raphael and uh, he looks like he's like dark hair he looks like the native like proper braids and uh, he he just we're just standing there and this car drives by and I panicked. and I put my gun down and I just stood there like this and they drove by kids looking out the window and there's a deer flopping around in front of them and we're just like uh and they just kept going and then it was there you learn how to properly cut the deer, deer's throat. And I, I apologize if this might be too much detail for people, but this is how I was raised. Bleed the deer out then gut the deer. And you realize then that's where the work just begins once you get your animal on the ground. But I'll never forget that day, that moment. It was a sunny day. Um, never forget. It. And then having to bring that deer home and skin it and kind of take on a new role in the family since then.
0: Wow. And talking about the work that goes into it, um, how is hunting still relevant in your life today? And what what does it mean to give back either to the land or to the community when it comes to that that hunting experience?
1: Well, I have to pay homage again to my parents. Um, When it starts with hunting, um, we would bring food home, of course, for the family. But my dad was always, I'll say this, overly generous with the wild game we'd bring home. It would, it's not uncommon for us to bring the animals home, have a full freezer, and within a couple months have nothing left because Dad takes it upon himself to give to anybody who comes through his door. Um, my mom is the same way. If you visit her house for the first time, she will come back. She'll give you a gift. She always has gifts on hand. But when it comes to hunting, um, we, my dad raised us on wild game. Even when we moved to Vancouver for seven years, I'd still make a point of coming back to the community so I could go on my yearly hunts with the family. It's the way we sustain ourselves. Um, My family, my wife and I eat wild game, my son then also eats wild game, my parents, uh, my brother, my cousins, and then of course that, so whatever animal we get that year, normally a a moose will do us. Uh, We use that to feed our families, but then we also give to others in the community. You always feel like my dad would say, as he said the last time I said, how, how's our moose supply? And he says, Oh, we have plenty. He says, uh, we're very rich. And I'd say we are very rich with wild game most years, except sometimes you have a dry year and you gotta go shop for beef.
0: (laughs) I like what you said about uh, your dad saying that we're, we're rich. And I think that's an indigenized version of wealth is the ability to give back. And I think that is how we, I think, measure our our sign of wealth, is how much we can give, how much can we give back. And so I I think that story of, you know, your dad's trap line, revitalizing that trap line, your experience hunting for the first time, and then, you know, that experience, how it's developed over time about giving back to the community and, and that gift culture, I think is, is also answering that, that earlier question about our identity and understanding who we are as people. So I think that's really interesting to hear your stories on that. And you spoke a little bit about how we sustain ourselves as people. So if you can elaborate a little bit about sustainability and what that means from an Indigenous perspective.
1: Oh Well, that's going to vary across Indigenous cultures. In but I can give you a, a brief synopsis of sustainability from a SEAL perspective, I'm Okanagan SEAL, the Okanagan people are SEAL people, Um, and Dr. Jeanette Armstrong, one of our elders in the nation, the Okanagan nation, but also she's a professor at UBC Okanagan, Um, her work has focused on a SEAL perspective of sustainability, Um, and our word, I could start with our word for tabula, our word for our land, sorry, our word for land is Tehulach. Now, arguably, you could say we don't actually have a term for the Western notion of land. Land is something in our Western minds that we look at as something we own, something we reside on, maybe build a house on, maybe pass on to children. Uh, It's a a resource we use. We go out, we take the resources from the land. But there's this, uh, it's a very like, transactional relationship we have, an understanding we have with the land base today. Uh, If you were to say land in, in uh, Okanagan, we have a, our language It creates vision or creates like, should create pictures in your mind. So when we say we also have to understand our word for and is our word for the universe. Uh, That's closest we can describe it. Uh, Tamiyokh would be everything that's created, everything we know that's created in the universe is the Tamiyokh. And we would be Temhulauh. You can see the similarities. Tamiyokh is a root word within the word Temhulauh, within the word for land. And so the Temhulauh, the land, is actually just a geographic point in the Tamiyokh of a specific set of relationships within that specific geographic point. So when you talk about sustainability in the land. We can't talk about the land without also remembering ourselves, remembering the animals and the fish and the water and the vegetation and everything, the microbes, the bacteria, the fungus that grow in the land, live and reside on the land. We are just one point of relationship within all this giant web of relationships, which is the Tamil is this giant web of relationships. Um, so I like to reference that to how Neil deGrasse Tyson says we're made up of four basic elements. Uh, see if I can remember carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and somebody the ah, remembered. Anyway, I know, I know so,
0: what you're talking about. Yeah,
1: he says, Oh, but at the end, we're all just made up of stardust. Mm. And in the Okanagan way, you could say, well, yeah, we're all connected with the creation around us, and what we see. And we're living on the tabula, this set of relationships here on this land base. So we wanna talk about then sustainability. When we talk about doing something to the land, it's not just something we're doing to some abstract object out there that exists apart from us. We very much are a part of that. We're part of, we can't, we can't, we have to stop this thinking that what we do to the land base and our environment is somehow going to be overcome through technological means in terms of the impacts to our environment and our existence as homo sapiens. We need to start understanding what we do to the land is actually directly impacting us. Our elders tell the stories here, um, up and down the valley of when they could actually take water right out of the Okanagan Lake and drink it. You can't do that anymore. Uh, You used to go to any stream here in the valley, you could drink those those waters and they'd be pristine clean waters. You can't do that anymore. Uh, We used to have fish runs, salmon that would come up through the rivers here and the creeks and they'd come during the, the salmon run in June. And they would be enough fish, you could walk across the backs of the fish. And you don't see that anymore. In fact, the Okanagan Nation is leading the, uh, the reclamation efforts for salmon habitat in the Okanagan and, and reintroducing salmon into the Okanagan Lake and Osuyus Lake, Skaha Lake. Um, because we, is, are we, the people, we've forgotten how interconnected everything is. And we've done things that have hindered... Uh, other species ability to thrive and their right to thrive in these environments. So from a SEAL perspective, uh, sustainability is far more than just trying to do things differently and and have a smaller carbon impact. It's about rethinking your relationship to the natural environment.
0: Love that. Uh, A web of relations. And I think I also wanted to, ask you how important language is to understanding that perspective and what does language how how important is language for you and how do you integrate that into your everyday life
1: well i, I always when i get asked that question i always remember a story of uh, my grandpa my muslim he's Cree. he was chief of samson Cree nation art pots has actually his uh he's passed away many years a few years ago and actually the first year I got elected to council was the year he passed away, and I actually got to talk to him. Uh, Before he passed, he called me up to congratulate me and gave me advice uh, based on his decades-long career in politics and a stint as chief as well. Um, But I would always ask him, because I always grew up trying to figure out what is culture. We talk about in our communities needing to revitalize our culture and our traditions, needing to bring back the old ways, and I struggle and still do about how those traditions fit in the modern era. I mean, there's traditions for tradition's sake, but then there's things I think we have to really think about the meaning behind those traditions and those ceremonies. And in some aspects, you might have to reinvent them. But I've always often like wondered, like, what is culture? And I would ask my Muslim that. And I'd always expect this long, you know, got a picture in your mind of sitting at your elder's feet and you pontificate about let me tell you grandson what culture is and he would just always look at me and say the language full stop and of course young academic i'd be like no there's got to be more uh, he just wasn't thinking hard enough so i'd ask him again I would surprise him muslim what is the culture it's the language and then as i started to understand the importance of language and culture and the importance of language and how shaping how we see the world. Uh, we're an English speaking society, obviously, um, but in the indigenous languages, in particular in the Cree language, and the Okanagan language, the language very much holds the secrets of a culture. Uh, when we tell stories um, in English, stories from our creation stories or different stories from our, our history, that have been passed down, um, we lose an element of the knowledge in that story when it's told in English. So when you say land, of course, our English mind is going to think land, just a piece of dirt out there somewhere. But when you say Tim hula, and the picture that should paint of you being one connected to a bunch, a web of relationships within a land base, um, that's powerful. So the language, and that's just one word, and there are so many words in all indigenous languages that hold so much more meaning when you unpack, you know, when you're, if you're a linguist, you understand the morphemes, the, the smallest meanings, root meanings of language you can get to. Um, you have a whole knowledge space hidden in the language that if we don't revitalize our languages and not just bring back, you know, language for the sake of language, but the knowledge that's hidden in there, we're gonna lose something very special. So how important is language? it, It is the culture, as my Muslim would say.
0: And, you know, I think this learning journey of language and culture, your scholarly career is you have a law degree from the University of British Columbia. You also have a Bachelor of Arts with a major in political science from UBC Okanagan. But you also have an MBA from Simon Fraser University. So why did you choose those majors in law and politics, considering our conversation of culture and language?
1: Oh, good. That's a good question. Well, what's the title of your podcast? No Blueprints.
0: That's right.
1: Well, I can honestly say I have no blueprint um, for my life other than I had a desire to serve people, to model the, my, my mother, who my I it owe a lot of my success to in life, if you want to call it that, um, she was just a servant, just loves people, serves people, serves her community. She's involved in a church community as well, always serving people. And that was what, when, when I did finally get my life together, um, that's a whole nother story. I just wanted to serve my community. So I, uh, you know, part of that, our understanding, we get, you know, As Indigenous people, we get this story that we need to go to school to make a difference. You need to go get your education. Education is the new Buffalo. So I just went to school because I thought it was what you're supposed to do. Um, And it wasn't until you get there, you realize there's all these systems of knowing um, that you could be learning about. And I wanted to learn all of it. I essentially wanted to go back to be a psychologist. I was in psychology. It was my major at first. Um, And then I discovered political sciences, I discovered philosophy, indigenous studies, and it opened up my mind to different ways of learning. But I also started to realize that this Western-based education system could open up ways of understanding the effects of colonization on on indigenous people. So going to law school, no blueprints again, it was never my plan to go to law school. I didn't grow up in a home where the parents talked about post-secondary education. Uh, Mom had audited courses at Simon Fraser University, dad had taken, I think, up to his third year um, at Simon Fraser University, but it wasn't a part of the family culture. Um, So when I went off to law school, I went off because I saw a poster on the wall advertising law school, and I thought, that's interesting. I think it would be interesting to understand how the law impacts Indigenous people and our understanding, like how you opened up with our understanding of what it means to be Indigenous. Um, obviously, uh, the government operates th- through law, law is how they enact their policies. Um, and of course, we know the detrimental impacts that Canadian law has had and Western law has had on Indigenous people and how they've controlled us, put on, us on reserves. I mean, all I have to say is the Indian Act, full stop. So I wanted to understand that. No dreams of wanting to be a big lawyer, in fact, had no concept of that, right? like. It just wasn't a part of how we grew up. Of course, everybody else might have. So everyone encourages you when you're like thinking about law school. Uh, you should go to law school. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, absolutely do it. So the encouragement helped, uh, but it was more my curiosity too that really drove me to law school. And I have to give a thanks to a, a lawyer here in West Kelowna who's worked very closely with our community. is a, a big part of the reason too I went to law school is Barry Pirelli, uh, who ultimately I remember the email. He sent me an email and said, absolutely, yes, you need to go to law school. And um, he actually wanted me to come back and article and work with him. But it was through law school. Again, no blueprints. I, you know, you have a pressure, people expectations. I think everyone understands the expectations of community on you, of different people. It was about second year law school where I realized I absolutely love the study of law, um, the theoretical and philosophical aspects of it. The practical implications of it, yes, but I didn't see myself practicing law. Um, and so I did make the decision, you know, I didn't want to be a lawyer. I wanted to, I was dabbling with community planning at the time. So I thought I'd go off and uh, do my master's in community planning. I actually got elected to council um, uh, when I was accepted to uh, SCARP School of Community and Regional Planning at UBC. Uh, with a full research fellowship, so fully sponsored uh, research fellowship, and then had to drop out because my council duties interfered. And then along came this MBA program, and I thought I could see how influential business was, how political theory was also influential in the development of indigenous thought, but also just indigenous colonization of indigenous people. And I thought, well, it'd be interesting to see how uh, the business world impacts indigeneity as well. But more importantly, I was interested in how our indigenous cultures, our languages, our values, our stories could influence business. Because I don't know if this resonates with any of your listeners out there, but in our communities here, you often heard the argument that the economic development was selling out or economic development was the white man's way or money wasn't for us. And all these things that really put up barriers to um, integrating into or working in the business community. And I thought, well, if cultures and unle- cultures from around the world, races from around the globe can partake in the economy in their own way and still not lose their culture, their language, their ways, we as indigenous people should be able to do the same. And it doesn't mean we have to do business the way it's always been done. It means we engage in business in a thoughtful manner that includes our values and our language. And we see what comes of that. Um, And that was my curiosity that drove me to to do an MBA. Otherwise I would have been just scared of the math portion. I would have said, no
0: (laughs) curiosity. You're bringing up, you're bringing up so many uh, important aspects of our journey as indigenous people in this, um, you know, world that we're navigating in this society that we're living in. I think that, uh, I, my listeners and this whole blo- No Blueprint series, there's definitely a strong association to entrepreneurship and, and helping us navigate this business world from an Indigenous perspective. And one of the biggest narratives that I feel the creator is guiding me right now in my life is understanding the true value of the fact that entrepreneurship can be a form of self-determination. And on top of self-determination, I think as indigenous people, we need to be integrated in all facets of society so that we can then self-determine the outcome of our communities. So the idea of entrepreneurship, I think, is is an incredible topic to elaborate. So I don't know if you have any reflections on self-determination and entrepreneurship.
1: Oh, I think they go hand in hand. One of the things I've learned about myself throughout my career is is I have a hard time sticking to routine. Um, I get bored very easy. So uh, entrepreneurial-like activities, uh, starting my own company, starting a company with uh, some business partners, though that was engaging, intriguing, and there's always a new challenge on the horizon. So I think um, when it comes to self-determination, being able to determine your own, like as an individual path forward, there's no better way than to do it as an entrepreneur and go out there and try and start your own business. Um,
0: knowing full well, though,
1: the majority of businesses fail, uh, but I think that's how we learn. I don't think we should shy away from failure. We should embrace it and understand failure is not the end of the road. But then when it comes on the, kind of the, on a more communal scale, uh, we look at the opportunities out there in the business world, the opportunities for our young people. Um, being entrepreneurial as a community is a way to demonstrate that we don't need handouts from government. We don't need to rely on on funding. We can actually create our own streams of revenue, whether that be an individual entrepreneur opening up a coffee shop um, or a winery, or you're seeing a lot of uh, cannabis shops pop up now these days, or if you're a community starting a construction company or deciding instead of letting the economic activity uh, pass you by if you live in the middle of the oil patch and I know that might be controversial but those communities have self-determined to make their own way forward and in many cases there's a lot of success stories of how they're taking those resources and using them to create their own path forward and revitalize culture language investing in their communities into social programs so Uh, I think, Justin, you hit it on the head. The two go hand-in-hand, entrepreneurship and uh, self-determination.
0: I want to take a little step back in your education career. And I I bring that up because I want to provide an opportunity for our young people to learn how to use the education to work for us and not against us. So I wanted to uh, preface my question with that and ask how were you able to navigate through an education system that was built with the colonial structure that also excluded the indigenous experience and maintain your cultural values? So how did you navigate the education system to maintain your cultural values?
1: That's an excellent, excellent question. So the irony is in many parts, while I was raised indigenous, raised to be proud of who I was as a Cree indigenous man, as a sioux indigenous man, um we didn't get the deeper teachings of the stories the language the meaning in the language uh, the understanding of a land base you haven't been raised in urban settings um, we didn't we weren't raised with that it was actually going back to school to university and taking indigenous studies courses with people like dr Jeanette armstrong where i was able to rediscover my culture um rediscover Portions of our language. And now we in our own community we have people going back to school to actually learn the language. Uh, we have one of our counselors elected uh, to his first term here, at West Bank First Nation, Counselor Jordan Koble. He is the first first-generation language speaker since residential school. He went back uh, to the language house, did a four-year program, and the, the fluent elder speakers wouldn't say he was fluent. But from my perspective, he can carry on conversation. He's got the knowledge of the language in him. He's a resource I go to ask questions. So that's powerful that these young people these days can actually go back to these colonial institutions and use them to learn about their culture and their history. At the same time, though, as you pointed out, these are Western-based colonial institutions. we need to be mindful of the fact that everything we learn, there isn't necessarily things we're going to agree with, just like there might be things in our culture that we don't agree with, that we have to wrestle with. It's not like we don't want to romanticize our past as Indigenous people and think it was all, everything was great prior to contact. Um, they might have been great within the parameters and the confines of that worldview, But now we have different worldviews to contend with and understandings of our place in the world that we have to rethink what it means to be Indigenous. And you get those tools from your post-secondary education. Um, It's also beneficial, too, to understand the theories and philosophies that that were the foundation of the colonization and the way that the Western society and the colonizers viewed Indigenous people was rationalized through philosophy and ways of thinking that were created. These are all made up. We look at this and we take it all for granted how we live in Western society, but they're all, we're we're living in, we live in kind of worlds of thought, ways of understanding and seeing the world. And if you want to, if you want to properly tackle those philosophies that have undermined our ways as indigenous people, you need to know them. So if you're philosophy, if you're interested in philosophy, that's the perspective I take. And if you're going to go into, say, the sciences, um, and we're talking here about a liberal education, uh, there again, those are Western-based ways of understanding the world. Science is one way of understanding the world, and I'm not trying to discount science, but it's not the complete picture. Uh, we're starting to see more interactions of Indigenous knowledge with science, Western-based science research, we're starting to see more acceptance of um, indigenous worldviews into how we manage the environment and seeing those as actually legitimate. And the reason we see them, are starting to see them as legitimate is because people before us who went to school, our moms and our grandfathers and our aunties and uncles, who went to school in the 80s and the 70s, when it wasn't popular for these ideas to be around, made space or these ways of thought, indigenous ways of thought in these spaces. So um, the institutions, they're malleable. They might have their roots in colonization, but you can go in there as an indigenous student, even as a, perhaps a teacher or professor, and change that. I also don't want to limit the, indig- the educational experience to just the liberal arts or sciences. Uh, you could also just go to school to learn a trade, do learn to do things, that society requires, and we depend on these, we're starting to see, especially in the pandemic, how important these essential services are, right? And how important it is to have like first frontline healthcare workers who are trained, not in the liberal arts, but they're trained in the local colleges and they're the heroes of today. And you can go in there and our, our communities need those, those people too. So you can go into those, uh, whatever career path you wanna pursue in academia or in post-secondary education, you can take your indigeneity into that place there's going to be a place and not it's not perfect but you can be an indigenous person and be proud of it and come back out of that institution and go to serve your community with much needed your skills you're going to bring back
0: that post-secondary institutions are malleable i think that is a very important statement And I think it also ties into my question in the sense of self-determination and making sure that we see ourselves in all facets of society. We need more graduates to become professors, and the more professors we have that are in these post-secondary institutions, the more they become indigenized and we can shape them in the way that we see fit. So I think that's an important thing to, to really make in my question around how you navigated the education system. Tying in the importance of our young people to allow the education to work for us and not against us. I think it's having that woke perspective of knowing how to navigate the system versus feeling like you're a victim of the system. I think those are two important distinctions to make. So I think that's really important. Um, And with your career path, with your education career, the work that you've done in your previous um, life in in different occupations, what was the journey like becoming a consultant? Because you also helped draft uh, the Comprehensive Community Planning Handbook for Indigenous and Northern Affairs, the first and second version of it. But you also are the founder and a partner of your own consulting planning company. So. Tell us the creation story of your own personal business that you're a partner of and your transition into consulting and community planning.
1: It's like a story. Everything else in my life, uh, it's not, I have to thank my community uh, for opportunity. Um, I actually started and hopefully, I hope this story resonates. I started in comprehensive community planning, not knowing anything about it. I had no idea that community planning was a profession. Again, no blueprints, right? So ignorant of the world around me and the opportunities there. But I walked into a meeting my, in, in my community. Uh, we were in the midst of creating our own comprehensive community plan. And we were, our members were talking about the future of our community and how to make it better. And it was an intriguing discussion. So I came back to the next community planning meeting. And then they needed, ultimately, they wanted to hire a band member to do the work. And I was, I think in my first or second year of university at the time, and uh, summer job opportunity came up and I was encouraged to apply. And so I applied and I got the job. <laughs> Again, not knowing anything about community planning, but I have to raise my hands to the people on the hiring committee and, and the staff back then because they gave me a shot and I got to learn about this profession and got to learn about what community planning was, got to take workshops. I w- I'm a, a lifelong learner, so I read books a lot. And so I did everything I could to learn about this profession and uh, conducted the community planning um, exercise in my community over four years uh, and actually, uh, and ended up drafting, writing the West Bank First Nation Community Plan, in two- which was adopted through WFN Law in 2010. Um, and through that time, because there was a whole community planning movement happening in indigenous communities across BC, I got to connect with incredible people like Jesse Hempel, who's now one of, a very good friend and one of my business partners, and Elaine Alec, another very good friend and business partner, who, by the way, Jesse has two degrees, Elaine has none, and so you don't always need a post-secondary education to make it in the world. Elaine just wrote a book and released a book on Amazon called Calling My Spirit Out, uh, incredible individuals I got to connect with and met and get, I got to know them through that time. And then of course, when I was done my work with West Bank, I went off to law school and the opportunities just came. People would call me up and they wanted answers to certain things. And with that, it was just like, can we hire you? And so the next thing I knew is like consulting my, my time out. And, and that helped me through law school. Um, it helped uh, pay the bills. And during that time, Uh, and then actually when law school was done, I started taking a little more seriously and started Derrickson consulting and was able to make a living. And, uh, what was also very important to me at that time was to spend time at home, uh, with my son who was in high school at the time. I didn't want to be missing his basketball games, volleyball games. I wanted to be there for him and present. So, uh, consulting allowed me to work from home and, and have that flexibility. And then it was actually a few years after that, uh, Elaine Alec we, was doing the same work I was, Elaine Alec consulting, and Jesse Hempel was doing the same thing that uh, I think hers was Jesse Hempel consulting. At, and then Elaine said, why don't we just do, start a business, start a company together? And so we did, not knowing anything. I was in the midst of my MBA at the time, so I was learning things about business. Um, and was able to use that knowledge. Uh, it was very helpful. But uh, Elaine had a lot of experience in business and uh, she, if you anyone out there knows Elaine Alex, when she gets something in her mind she's unstoppable. I like to call her hair straight back, just goes for it. So we went for it and uh, I'm no longer in the company. Um, I miss them dearly. Uh, I am a, still a partner but not working for them or anything because I don't have the time but uh, they're doing very well, very proud of them. I miss them a lot but our whole impetus to behind alder hill planning was to serve indigenous communities and to help people
0: amazing um, so you have a long history of working for the community and also um, a long history of being a community member for west bank first nation and so long and behold, you are now chief of West Bank First Nation. So what is your experience like becoming chief 2019 and under 50, by the way?
1: Yeah, over 40. And I'm feeling it. Uh, I'm uh, I How is it becoming, you know, it, it's an overwhelming honor. Um, I'm still learning as a young chief. I'm quite cognizant that I'm here to hold a position for a time. uh, uh, The title chief doesn't belong to me. In our words, it's Ilmichum. Again, another word I prefer over chief. Um, Ilmichum in our language actually paints a picture of taking strands of a thread and coiling them together and coiling it one on top of another to make this beautiful structure, bringing many strands together. So that's Ilmichum art. That's what an Ilmichum is in our language and what I try to live up to. Um, and it's, the title belongs to the people, belongs to the community. Mm. And it's an honor to serve the people, uh, as a, as a counselor, one who goes out and does the work. Um, and now as chief, uh, knowing the long history of great leadership we've had in this community. Um, it's still something I'm every day. I'm thankful for to go to work. I'm excited to go to work and, uh, to be able to give back to my community, because ultimately every educational opportunity, career opportunity, I can trace back to my people, my community and the opportunities that they gave me. And it's a a complete honor to be able to give back in a small way uh, to my people. Um, And when your people want you to do something, I've learned you really have no choice. So uh, yeah, still overwhelming and still very thankful to, to be in this role.
0: I respect that answer that chief doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the people. I think that's an am- very well said. And I think following up with you know, being chief and the work that goes into being chief and the work that goes into working for the people, um, all the things that you have in your personal life on top of it, how do you find balance between work and family life and how do you maintain a good mental health?
1: Well, um, <clears throat> well, in terms of balance, uh, people, I'm, I'm somewhat of a workaholic. I, you, I've learned that uh, through anything you want to achieve is achievable if you just work hard enough at it. And I actually had to learn how to work. I had to learn how to work in a university setting. I almost got kicked out of university twice, was put on academic probation. So it wasn't always just roses and academic awards and achievements, I had to, I struggled in academia. But I learned through hard work and determination. Um, it, you can overcome it, almost any obstacle. Um, and when you have the support of the community and your family, um, that can even push you further. So uh, I, but fortunately enough, my son is, I have a son, he's 24 years old. I had him when I was 17 years old. So he's grown up and moved on. So I have the privilege of being an empty nester at forty. My wife and I, uh, while all our friends are having babies right now or raising kids, um, we're empty nesters, <laughs> uh, dual income, and uh, I, I have the privilege of being able to throw myself into a, into a career at this stage. Uh, before that, though, I was committed to family life. I was a single father for many years. My wife's. Mother died of a drug overdose when he was only four years old. I lived a very different life as a young person. And it was my son at 17 years old who shook me out of that stupor and realizing I was responsible for another life. Um, and that the outcome of his life was really reliant on the choices I would make at my, with my life at that point in time and for the rest of my life. Um, so I made a, it was my, my commitment then that I would put my son first. And I did for many years and people can remember, I would bring him everywhere with me. He was my little sidekick, Um, wasn't always easy, uh, but he was always welcome wherever I went, Um, always with me. And I always made sure that his education and the opportunities for him were put first so that he would have opportunities, not have to go through what I went through in my teenage years. So I would encourage people, uh, when it comes to balance and career advancement, nothing can replace your family, and to put that as a priority. Uh, And I'm fortunate enough uh, to have found a wonderful life partner, my wife Jordan, who absolutely supports me in almost everything I do. Sometimes she says, you just talk too much, you have all these ideas. But uh, when I put set my mind to something, she knows I'm going to be wholehearted into it. She but I also listened to her. And if she wasn't supportive of something I wanted to do, I wouldn't do it. And so at this stage in my life, this job is very demanding. Um, I, I'm away from home uh, when it wasn't COVID travel a lot. Now that there's COVID, I'm just at the office a lot or working a lot. Um, but at the same time, I try to strike a balance by spending time with my wife on the weekends. We go up to the track line. Uh, we travel together. She's my best friend. Um, so spending a lot of time with loved ones, checking in with my parents is very important to me just to be able to stop in there anytime and I'm welcome there to say hi and, and have a visit with them. So those are ways I try to keep balanced. I also try to stay physically active. Um, and then you, you asked about mental health. That's actually an interesting question because uh, personally, I suffer from anxiety, uh, generalized anxiety uh, and depression. Um, and I've suffered from it from as young as I can remember being uncomfortable in, in large crowds. Uh, but you don't have the language or the knowledge base to like define what's going on inside you or how you're feeling. Uh, but it was only in the last three years of my life that I actually decided to take my mental health seriously, go to the doctor, talk honestly about it, and just be frank and upfront about it. I, I feel like, uh, talk about let's talk about bell let's talk hashtag let's talk about mental health but when you actually do some people get really uncomfortable and i think it's okay to say that you can have mental health disorders of varying degrees they're all on a spectrum and still be successful um, and still get things done Um, and it doesn't mean just because you have anxiety or you get depressed from time to time that there's something wrong with you you're you are not the chemical reactions in your brain uh some of those things you can't control. And so if there's anyone out there that struggles with mental health issues, I encourage you to take it seriously and just ask for help. Don't wait like I did. Um, I, I do, um, I'm do. i not ashamed to say I take medication now uh, and I've not had a depressive episode that which were there regular patterns in my life uh, for the last since I've been on medication. Um, I've learned different coping mechanisms uh, to deal with my own anxiety um, I've, you know, mindfulness, uh, staying in the now, different things. I've, I've read up a lot about it, but I've just come to accept it too. Like uh, It's there and you need to do things to look after yourself and you're not going to get anywhere if we're just not honest. And there is no shame, absolutely no shame in having uh, to deal with mental health issues.
0: My condolences to you and your early life experience. Um, I just want to make sure that I I'm acknowledging that and, and appreciate you sharing, you know, that honest truth and that honest past and moving forward with your story of mental health and and how you've been able to overcome that, I think, is a amazing story of resilience. And I say that intentionally because I hope that our listeners can also take that in, is that as indigenous people, that's who we are. We are resilient resilient. And I think Chris Derrickson's story of your journey of how you got to where you are is a perfect example of that. So I wanna, you know, first before I move forward, is is just thank you for sharing that aspect of your personal life. Uh, I wanna make sure that I'm, I'm giving you respect for that and and let you know how thankful I am for for you sharing. So would you say that part of your resilience is the fact of your finding that sense of purpose with your family life. Like what is that guiding star that helps you push through those hard times in your life? What is that, that thing that keeps you moving forward, Chris?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, I'm not a believer in the self made individual or even an individual for that matter. I think we live in a society where we put too much emphasis on our individuality and who we are is, People and um, I like to think I had a lot of help along the way, Justin. Um, I'm not here because of my work ethic or my drive. Sure, those play a part, but I'm here because mom and dad believed in me and didn't push me aside when I was a young father at 17. I'm here because leadership in our community invested in education, made it a priority to invest in education so I could go on to university and do different things. And, and fail and, and try again and not, you know, not have to walk away because I failed a class, but they encouraged me. Uh, I had friends encouraging me. Um, I, I'm not here because of just myself. I am here because of people around me. And I think it's so important for us to realize how the people you let into your life allow to influence you. have a strong they're hugely influential in who you are and how you see the world. So um, we need to be mindful of who we accept into our life and allow into our life, but at the same time, so thankful uh, for those people who come into our life good or bad that teach us lessons along the way. Um, And I've been so fortunate to have amazing people like, like mama bear, Nicole, who, <laughs> she did a positive influence. Yeah, it's uh, you spent time around those types of people and like you, Justin, I remember when you came to our community, uh, you know, I see an indigenous rapper, it's like Lightfoot, man. You're, I don't know if you know who Lightfoot was, but going way back, when you see that, you say, I, that's, I could do that. So you have an impact on people around you because of what you do and who you are. And I think it, we have to remember as individuals that we allow that into our life. So I hope that gives uh, some context to your answer or to
0: your question. Actually, I think you went over and beyond. I think you really helped uh, connect the dots between the true value of our interconnectedness with all things in our universe, that web of relations, as you mentioned earlier on. And I think that is a true reminder that we suffer if we try to do things on our own, by ourselves, in our own way. And I definitely you're really helping kind of change my paradigm by what you said, because all of a sudden my brain is reconnecting these dots of the same kind of thing that you're mentioning about our, my cousin Nicole in West Bank First Nation. I get a lot of healing when I go out there to visit and she is consistently there for me anytime. If I pick up the phone at whatever time of night she's there to be to, to answer and whatever it is we want to talk about, we talk about. And because of her, I feel I've had that amazing privilege to connect with the community out in West Bank. I've been able to to meet you, that's that interconnectedness. We're here on this No Blueprint series now as a result of that. And to be honest, that's really why I wanted to do this No Blueprint series, was to provide some sort of positivity in our web of interconnectedness about highlighting positive stories of indigenous people who've made it in whatever form or fashion or industry that is. And I want our young people to be able to pick that up and be like, wow, that person did it that way. Maybe I can too. Just like you said about that rapper on the stage, like, oh, maybe I can do that too, right? So I really appreciate you sharing your insight, your perspectives about all of that and our interconnectedness and all of our relations and being a a small part of that larger web. I think that makes a, a a lot of sense and i think i'd like to wrap it up with that if there's anything else you'd like to share if you have any other comments this would be the time but uh, i think that's a great way to wrap this up uh, just
1: want to thank you Justin, for the opportunity and for everything you do i think you're a huge inspiration to young people you're incredibly positive um, welcome you back to visit our community anytime Nicole can't just keep you to herself all the time, and Sage, we got to share share the love. And your, <laughs> uh, um, thank you for putting this on. I think uh, people like you are going to make a huge difference uh, for our Indigenous young people and non Indigenous across Canada. So thank you very much.
0: Wash day. I appreciate that. And, and travel safe and, and all the best in your journey moving forward, man. I hope to cross paths with you soon.
1: Absolutely. Lim,
0: Wash day.